I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, we have been making our way through a series, which is a little unusual for us, a topical series on our DNA or our core values as a church. And uh, we find ourselves kind of in a, a bonus sermon along these lines this morning. In 1 Peter chapter 2, you'll find our reading on page 1014. Um, just to give you a sense of where we're going in terms of the preaching for the next couple of weeks, tonight will be the, or today rather, this morning will be the last sermon in our DNA series. Next Sunday, Jeremy Lutz will be preaching, and then following that, we'll be back into the Gospel of Matthew for the foreseeable future. Um, I had the privilege of being with Tom Rapcheck on Friday night at their CCO Leadership Together conference. I think this is a picture. Uh, at the end of the night, one of the most encouraging things of my weekend, really, was this moment right here. There were a couple of our students there. Allison was there. Callista was there. I don't know if any, any other of you were there. Henry was there. Yeah, I was with Henry. Um, sorry, Henry. But... Um, this was, this was probably the most encouraging moment of the night for me. This is the very end of the night. The guy um, in the middle is a guy named Daniel from Uni uh, City Reformed Church in Pittsburgh, a uh, Presbyterian brother. He was leading the worship for the night, and at the end of the night, all of the students, you can't really get the depth or the breadth of how many kids are there, they all sort of gathered right up against the platform. And to hear these kids sing with no shame, and to raise their hands, they're singing hymns, y'all. Um, it was a beautiful thing. It was just so tremendously encouraging. If you don't know Tom and you don't know the CCO, let me encourage you to get to know Tom and that ministry. I, I just don't have enough good things to say about it. I was just walked away very, very glad for our partnership with him. Um, but the reason I was there was it, Tom had asked me to come and speak on the issue of identity. And I think that this passage here in 1 Peter chapter 2 speaks to the issue of identity uh, more clearly than almost any other passage in the New Testament. And so I want to draw your attention here to chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. I'm going to read this text together, and, and then we'll dive in and make some application for us as a church. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. Peter writes, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we ask 
in this time together that as we open our Bibles and seek to know what you have said and to understand what you have said and to be transformed by what you have said, that you would be our help and our guide. We pray that you would give us hearts that are willing to submit to what you have laid out for us in your word, that you would give us the ability then to live in light of all that we learn, that you would help us to lean into our identity here as your people at First Baptist. And we ask all that we have in Jesus' name. Amen. So 2020 is a census year. If you didn't know that, uh, there will be a census taken in the coming year. I, we thought that maybe over the weekend we were visited by a census person. We didn't know. We didn't answer the door. But they were ringing all of the doorbells at the Mission House, desperately trying to get a hold of somebody. Uh, but 2020, nevertheless, is a census year. And in a census year, the question of identity comes front and center. We're asked, point blank, who are you? In an effort then to corporately be able to define who we are as a nation. Seems to me that never uh, more than in a census year are we confronted with the issue of identity. And as soon as we're confronted with the issue of identity, we recognize how much of an identity crisis many of us suffer from. The last census, when it was taken, NPR asked a group of young people to respond uh, by giving them if they, uh, an answer to this question. If you could write your own check boxes to describe your identity in the census, how would you describe yourself? And many of the answers were pretty typical. One young woman that I, I looked at her response said, I'm Korean, first-year American, I claim no political party or religion. Now that's interesting just as an aside. It used to be in our culture in America that if you didn't have really any religious affiliation, you would have had enough experience with Christianity to say Christian. But now among young people, we're seeing a rise in what we call the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, people who have no religious affiliation whatsoever. This young woman represents that group. And then finally, she identified herself as being a believer in being a good person. Certainly nothing wrong with that. My favorite response, though, was from a young man who, after identifying himself with about 10 different labels, said finally, quote, hater of labels. Nothing describes our identity crisis, I think, more than that. We simply don't know who we are. I understand the sentiment there. He probably doesn't dislike the labels he puts on himself, but simply the labels put on him by other people. What's so fascinating about all of these responses is they, they seem to focus on individual identity. That makes sense, doesn't it, as Americans? We live in an individualistic culture. We identify ourselves by who we are as individuals rather than who we are in relationship to our families or even our churches. But what we want to do this morning is consider together our corporate identity. Who are we as the church? You ever ask that question as a believer in Jesus? Who are we as the church? If you're a non-Christian, you ask that question in a very different way. Who are you? You seem like a very strange bunch of people. But before we can even answer that question for you, we have to answer it for ourselves. Who are we? Now, this is complicated by the fact that there are many now in our culture who are uh, very quick to give us an identity. If you just watch the news, you'll realize that the church is maligned and typically now referred to as being evil or hateful or spiteful, intolerant, and the list goes on and on. 
And that's exactly why the letter of Peter in this first letter that he writes to the churches scattered all throughout the Roman world is so relevant to us. Because what Peter is doing in this letter is he's writing to people he calls elect exiles in chapter 1, verse 1, chosen by God to be strangers in this world because of faith in Jesus. And he encourages them to meet suffering for Christ with good works as they await the glory that will be theirs when Jesus returns. He he tells them that you will suffer in this life. The glory is reserved for when Jesus returns. Now, one of the fascinating things about this letter is the expression that the suffering that these believers are experiencing takes. Certainly, this was a time of great persecution, but you'll notice in chapter 2, verse 12, that much of their suffering has simply to do with being maligned, ridiculed, for their faith in Christ. Look at what he says. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers. How perennially relevant is that? When they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So the culture around these believers and the culture in which we live seeks to give us an identity of being evildoers. Now, it's so important that we come to grips with what Peter says in this text, because if we don't, if we don't come to grips with the alternate and true identity for the church given to us by the Lord Himself, we will do one of two things in an effort to shake the label of evildoer. On the one hand, we will dig our feet into the ground and begin to fight a useless battle in the culture wars. Or, on the other hand, we will retreat from the culture war altogether and simply forfeit our conviction and abandon our faithfulness to Jesus in an effort to no longer be thought intolerant and evil. Neither of those options, neither of those options are acceptable options for those who have come to know Jesus. No, the third way, the alternative way, is to lean into our true identity as, as Peter says, the temple of God, and the people of God. Because it's only when I know who I am that I will know what I'm supposed to do. I will never know what I'm supposed to do until I know who I am. That's why we tell our staff all the time, it is being before doing. Don't lead with what you can do, lead with who you are. And that's exactly the approach that Peter takes here. Now in this text, what Peter tells us very simply is that as God's temple and people, the church exists for His praise. That's the message of this passage. As God's people, or as God's temple rather, and people, the church exists for God's praise. That's why we're looking at this passage in our series on DNA. We're trying to ask the question, why the church? Why the church? Why First Baptist Church? What is our ultimate aim and purpose? Why do we exist? And Peter's answer is very simple. We exist for the praise of God. The entire message of this passage is summed up very well by Charles Bridges, who wrote a book entitled The Christian Ministry. This is the first sentence of the book. He says, The church is the mirror that reflects the whole effulgence of the divine character. Simply translated, the church is to reflect to the world around us 
who God is in all of His glory, majesty, and excellence. That's why we're here. This is Peter's message in the passage in front of us. I want to draw your attention first to our identity together corporately as the church, verses 4 to 8, as the temple of God. The temple of God. Now, a few things become immediately apparent in this large paragraph that runs from verses 4 to 8. The first is that Jesus is the cornerstone of God's spiritual house. Jesus is the cornerstone of God's spiritual house. Secondly, that the church itself is God's spiritual house. And that thirdly, as God's spiritual house, the church now has as its purpose priestly service to God. We're going to unpack each and every one of those sentences. First of all, Jesus is the cornerstone of God's spiritual house. Look at verse 4. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You see that contrast. In the world, rejected, yet chosen and precious to God. Again in verse 6, as Peter quotes from Isaiah chapter 28, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, there's our word, chosen and precious, the same language, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Then again, in verse 7, he quotes from Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And finally, in verse 8, from Psalm 814, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Jesus is the cornerstone of God's spiritual house. Now, all of this language is architectural. I don't have very much architectural insight. I know enough to know how to put together a Lego set when my son brings a new one home, and that's about it. I'm beginning to think that sometimes you need a degree in architecture to put some of these things together. But I know enough to know that the foundation stone, the cornerstone, is the most important stone in a building. It is the stone upon which everything else is built. And here Peter is telling us that Jesus is that cornerstone. But that does not mean that everyone in the world understands Jesus in this way. No, as a matter of fact, this entire paragraph is replete with references to Jesus having been rejected by men, verse 4. Rejected by the builders, verse 7. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, verse 8. And what Peter is doing here is presenting Jesus, if you will, as the paradigm for what it means to be a believer in our culture. Jesus was rejected by men and yet vindicated and glorified by God in his resurrection. Jesus was hated by the builders, that is, the religious leaders of his day, even to the point of being nailed to a Roman cross. And yet, in God's sight, he is chosen and precious. Jesus becomes then for this spiritual house, the church, the example of how to suffer well and lean into our identity as God's temple. Now, if you're not a Christian here this morning, you need to know that we do believe that Jesus is far more than simply our example. As a matter of fact, we stake our entire lives on Christ and what He has done for us. Later on in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Peter gives us a very succinct and clear presentation of the Christian message, the gospel. He says, Christ also suffered once for sins, 
the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. The Christian message is that by nature and by choice, you and I are alienated. We are separated from God on account of our sins, our unrighteousness, as Peter refers to it. And it's only that because of what Jesus has suffered on our behalf on the cross, not for His sins, but for our sins, and then rising again, that we are reconciled and brought back to God. It is only through Jesus and what He has done to accomplish this reconciliation that we Christians can approach chapter 2, verse 4, and come to Him. If you're not a Christian here this morning, that is our message to you. That Jesus Christ has laid down His life for your sins and raised again so that you might be able to come to the living God and know Him. But it doesn't end at your conversion. No, we understand that we continually come to Him over and over and over again. And as we do so, we find that He is not only the cornerstone of God's spiritual house, but we ourselves are God's spiritual house. We are His temple. Now, this is bizarre language, I trust, to many of us, especially because of the way that we bandy about sort of our very Christian-ease sort of expressions. And it's common, isn't it, to say time and time again, and I understand the sentiment, and it's right in so far as it goes, but we say from time to time that the church is not a building. The church isn't a building. I understand what we mean by that. We mean to say that the church is bigger than the brick-and-mortar building in which we meet, that the church is God's people, not a building. I understand that. But look at what Peter says. Peter says, on the other hand, the church is absolutely a building. It's not a brick-and-mortar building. It's a flesh-and-blood building. You yourselves are being built up as a spiritual house. All throughout the Bible... From the earliest chapters of Genesis, God is keen to dwell in the midst of His people. We see that as He walks with Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. We see that forfeited through the sin and disobedience of our first parents in Genesis chapter 3 as they're kicked out of the garden. But then as God redeems His people from slavery in Egypt, at the end of the book of Exodus, Moses receives instructions for building the tabernacle, a place where God will be able to dwell with His people, a portable temple, if you will. And at the end of Exodus, God comes in glory and majesty to be with His people in a special way in His presence within the tabernacle. 2 Samuel 7 David desires to build for the Lord not a tabernacle, but a permanent place of dwelling in Jerusalem, a place referred to as a house. As Jesus comes onto the scene, John chapter 2, he gets a lot of grief from the religious leaders when he tells them, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it up on the third day. That is to say that when Jesus comes, the place in which God dwells with His people and meets with His people is no longer a place in Jerusalem, it is in the person of His Son. And Peter picks up all of this imagery, this theme that runs throughout the entirety of the Scriptures, and he says, now, church, you yourselves, like living stones, are a spiritual house. Where does God dwell in a special way on earth, but in His people by the presence of His Holy Spirit? Peter's saying, you are the temple. 
And if that is the case, then that changes absolutely everything in relationship to what we are called to do. Peter tells us that as this spiritual house, as this temple, we are called to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Here is the great purpose of the church, being built up as a temple to the praise and to the honor of the Lord who has done this. I know a man, I'm kind of proud to be able to say I know this man, I know a man who was part of the original team who designed the Sears Tower. I'm told that's called the Willis Tower now. I think we all can agree it's still the Sears Tower. Um, But a few years back, I was in Bridgman, Michigan. It was right on the the shore of Lake Michigan. And you're looking over the, the lake to the west, and you can see the Chicago skyline just towering uh, over the clouds, it seems. And I remember saying to one of the people that was showing us this beach there at Lake Michigan, you know, I know the guy who designed that building. The building, in, in, a, in effect, gives glory to this man who helped to design it. And in the same way, Peter is saying that this building, that is the church, has as its purpose giving glory to the one who's designed us. He says we are to offer spiritual sacrifices. Now, in the Old Testament temple, this is the place where animals were sacrificed on account of sin. That's not the kind of sacrifice Peter is talking about. He's talking about the kind of sacrifice that is offered on account of forgiveness. Because we have been forgiven, because we've been made the temple, we are to offer spiritual sacrifice. Listen to the way that the writer to the Hebrews describes this. He says, through him then, that's Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God, a sacrifice of praise and good works. Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, writes famously, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Friends, if we are the temple of God, and by extension then the priests of God, that changes absolutely everything for our lives. That means that my life individually and certainly my life corporately with other brothers and sisters within the church is no longer about me. It means everything now is done in relationship to who God is, the weightiness of His glory, and making Him known. Whether it is by praise, by good deeds, or allowing my life to be consistently killed allowing myself to be consistently offered up, if you will, on the spiritual altar so that I might worship Him, I have died, and now God is the most important person in everything that I do. What that means for us as a church, very simply, is that our ultimate goal, our ultimate aim, is the praise and glory of God. What that means very practically for us is that when we come together on a Sunday morning, I apply this to myself as much as I apply it to you. It is fundamentally not about you or me. It is just simply not. That's why it's ridiculous when we fight over preferences and silly business like that. It is about the Lord and His glory. 
What do we do when we come together? We come together to offer a sacrifice as the priests of God for the glory of God. Because we are the temple. But secondly, we are the people of God. Verses 9 to 10. Peter continues on to say, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. He, he's giving us this identity as God's people. And what I want you to see here is that there's a contrast, isn't there, there in verse 9, but he contrasts who we are with those who, in light of verse 8, stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. Let's not get ourselves all confused and tangled up in the language of the verse. Let's just acknowledge the fact that what Peter is doing is contrasting the fact that there are some who reject Jesus, and there are those of us who accept Jesus, and in the sight of the world and the scale of values that our culture operates from, it is an honorable thing not to trust Jesus and a shameful thing to belong to Jesus. And what Peter has got to do to reorient us so that we don't buy into that narrative is to flip the roles completely on their head. You see that all the way back in verse 6. Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. It's not a shameful thing to trust Christ. The honor is for those who believe, verse 7. It's an honorable thing to belong to Jesus. Why? Because we are His people. Now, all throughout verses 9 and 10, what Peter does is he he leverages the Old Testament witness to help us understand who we are. And just listen to the references that he alludes to as I read them, and you'll hear the language of verses 9 and 10. Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, Moses says to the people of Israel, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Peter says you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. What's so profound and remarkable about what Peter does here is he takes this description of Israel and he applies it to the church. And he says it's not simply that Israel is my nation. It's not simply that Israel is my people, ethnic Israel, but you, the church made of Jew and Gentile alike, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now think about the testimony of something like this to the cultural moment in which we live, when we are divided increasingly along racial and ethnic lines where we seek to divide one another on the basis of age or whatever it might be, we are increasingly separated. And yet, Peter says, it is only in Christ where truly the nations are united. Every tribe, tongue, and nation, you make up this chosen race. You are this royal priesthood. You are this holy nation. Continue on in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 21, God speaks of His covenant people as the people whom I formed for Myself, that they might declare My praise. The people whom I have formed for Myself, I made them to belong to Me so that they might declare My praise. 
Look at what Peter says to us here in this passage. You are a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are owned. If you belong to Jesus, fundamentally, your life is no longer yours. You are part of this people that Peter refers to as being for God's own possession. Isn't this what Paul says in 1 Corinthians? You were bought with a price. You were bought with the very blood of Jesus. Therefore, Paul says, glorify God with your body. And this is the corporate expression of that same principle. You belong to the Lord. Therefore, you will declare His praise. If I ask the question, who is the church for? I think some of us would have the sense that that's a trick question. Who is the church for? Friends, the church, first and foremost, is for God. It is for God. We are people for His own possession. Now again, if these things are true of us, that changes everything in relationship to what we will and will not do. Because Peter, on the strength of this identity, says, you are these things so that you will proclaim His excellencies. Now there is dispute here among scholars But whether or not Peter is talking about corporate praise as we come together, or praising the Lord publicly in order that others might come to know Him. And I think it's the latter. Israel is given its commission in the Old Testament not to hoard the goodness and mercy of God for themselves, but to make the Lord known to all of the nations. It's not as though somehow or another once we get into the New Testament, God is concerned with the Gentiles. You find that all throughout the Old Testament. It's that Israel failed in its task to make the Lord known to the Gentiles. So he has done it in Christ. And now he calls us as the church to pick up where Israel left off and to make him known among the nations, to declare his excellencies, the one who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Now listen, the only way that we will do that is if we never get over the fact that at one time we were in darkness and He has called us into His marvelous light. You will never do that unless you've come to grips with the fact that you were once lost and have been found. You were once in darkness and now you are in light. You will never do that if that message gets old. I mean, just imagine if you had never been rescued by the mercy of God, where would you be? What would the darkness look like for you today had Jesus never rescued you? When I was in seminary, I took uh, several classes with a man by the name of Dr. Hamilton. He was my favorite professor by a long shot. As Kendall and Johnny are taking classes at Southern, I try to campaign for Hamilton all the time. He's absolutely phenomenal. And on one occasion, he was talking to us uh, as students about the shifts that he has made theologically in his thinking along the course of his scholarship. And I asked him the question in class. I said, Dr. Hamilton, what's the largest shift you've ever made? What's the biggest theological shift you've ever made? And I expected him to say something about, well, I thought I was a Presbyterian, but I'm a Baptist. I used to believe in spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues, and now I don't. I figured something like that. 
But he looked at me with, without hesitation. And with a large smile on his face, he said, darkness to light. What is the biggest shift that you have ever made in your life, if not darkness to light? There is a man that for all of his learning and brilliance has never, ever, for a moment, moved on from the gospel. May First Baptist Church be a group of people who never, ever, ever will move on from the gospel. And in so doing, in leaning into this incredible message, that we might proclaim the excellencies, the praises, the glory, the uniqueness, the, the magnificence of the God who saved us. How are we going to do this? We're going to do this by leaning into the fact that we were once not God's people. Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, of His sinful and wayward people, God says, I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and He shall say, you are my God. And once we have the privilege, the responsibility the glory of being able to say to the world around us, He is my God. He is our God. It's remarkable what the Lord has done for us in Christ. If you think about what it costs, the actual cost in human life for a nation to be birthed, isn't that what, what Peter refers to us as a, 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 a holy nation? Think about our history as a country. If we could only go back to 1776 and to thank those who laid down their lives so that we'd be freed from tyranny. It took the shedding of blood for us to become a nation. In the history of Israel, it took the shedding of the sacrificial lamb's blood painted on the doorposts to cause the Lord to pass over in mercy rather than judging His people. Don't you realize that for us to have this exalted identity, that Jesus, the perfect man, the perfect Son of God, laid down His life to birth this incredible nation so that we might exist for His praise. Once if we really truly come to grips with what Peter is saying, we will understand that everything we do, everything we do must, we have no other option, must fall under the umbrella of glorifying God. We exist for God, for His praise, for His glory. We were saved for it. And so here we come to the purpose of this final message in our series on DNA. You know, in the course of the past few weeks, as we've talked about the things that we value, we value being gospel-centered, we value Bible preaching, we value church health. One of the things that has been left out, and, and you'll know, uh, Nigel, our, our brother pastor over at Ichthus Mandawi in the Philippines, helped me tremendously to, to think this out and to, to realize this. What we've been missing is a sense of ultimacy. And what that translates into is we, we aim far too low. We have really, really easy goals because we're not aiming high enough. 
if the Bible is right and true, and it is, then we exist as a local church to glorify God. That is our great purpose. That is our aim. And I don't know about you, but that's breathtaking to me. That we might actually exist for God's glory. And so we need to make that explicit. Our mission statement has gone through a couple of revisions in the past couple of years. When I first came, it was simply connecting people to Jesus. Very, very good. The Bible's clear that we are to make disciples. It's the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel. That is what we do. We've changed that a bit to say that we're connecting people to Jesus as disciples who make disciples. And we've done that so that we understand how it is that we're going to connect people to Jesus. We needed some tracks to run on so that we understood what it meant to connect people to Jesus. We make disciples. But this morning, we're telling you, and we've printed all of the new material, it's, it's all said and done, that the third and final revision is to change our mission statement to say, glorifying God by making disciples who make disciples. Glorifying God by making disciples who make disciples. We need consistently reminded of why we do what we do. And the reason that we do what we do is to glorify God. Who is First Baptist Church? We are the temple of God and the people of God. So what is our purpose? We are here to glorify God by making disciples who make disciples. There's a word about this statement, and then we'll close our time together. What we love about the way that this statement reads now is that it gives us a purpose in three areas of life, or three key relationships. So listen, we do not simply want this to be a buzz phrase or something that you see on our marketing or promotional material. We want this to be something that you can say and know and own. Glorifying God by making disciples who make disciples. In relationship to God, the upward focus of our lives, we aim to glorify God. In relationship to one another, our inward focus as a church, we seek to make disciples. And what we mean by that is moving beyond simply making decisions to making disciples. So that it is of primary importance for us as a church that we grow in our understanding of the gospel and in our spiritual maturity. That's why we do our growth groups now. We think that's a wonderful way for us to grow in Christ together. But it's not enough simply to look up and to look within if we never look out. That is to say, it is wrong to focus solely on ourselves without having a desire for the lost to come and know Jesus. And so it is not our aim simply to make disciples, but to make disciples who then will go and make disciples. So understand what we're saying here is that the, the execution of this mission is not reserved. Understand this. It is not reserved for the staff or the elders. If you are a member of First Baptist Church, we are calling you to arms. This is your mission. You go make Him known. You go be generous and liberal in your spreading of the Gospel. 
I want to just rewind and encourage a, another brother here in the church. Uh, I, was, I was at lunch with a brother uh, earlier this week, and this couple overheard us talking and said, you know, it was like the biggest layup in the world. She said, I hear you talking about forgiveness. Um, can I ask you a question? And we said, well, of course you can ask us a question. Ask us two. This brother just went on to explain the good news of Jesus with them. Makes my heart sing. This is a call to arms for us as a church. We are to glorify God by making disciples. Make God's glory your primary aim. Make your spiritual maturity of paramount importance. And as you do that, allow the gospel to propel you outward to proclaim his excellency wherever you might find yourself. That's what we're trying to do together. Here is the culmination of valuing gospel-centeredness, Bible preaching, and church health. The glory of God, spiritual maturity, and outreach to the lost. We're going to aim high. We're going to aim real high. And we're going to pray big prayers. And we're going to watch God do whatever He wants to do through this body for His majestic glory. Will that get you up in the morning? It'll get me up in the morning. I hope you'll join me. Let's pray. Oh, Father, everything you do is for your glory. Everything you do is for your praise. We marvel that in your kindness, your desire to be glorified and our desire to be satisfied and forgiven and redeemed are not at odds, but that you glorify yourself most clearly in calling a people to yourself from every tribe, tongue, and nation, that you glorify yourself most clearly in being the builder and the architect of this new temple in which you come and dwell by your Spirit, a temple that is comprised not of brick and mortar, but flesh and blood. Lord, we marvel that we would be included in the number of those who've been called out of darkness and into your marvelous light. And so we pray that we would make it our aim to bring you glory. Father, we want to glorify you by making disciples who will then go and make disciples. Lord, please help us. Please cause your word to grow in our hearts. Please cause a passion for your glory and for Christ, for your people, to grow in our hearts. And give us an increasing sense of unity, camaraderie, and gospel partnership in this work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.